Uh, we've been looking uh, in a series of four talks uh, at uh, God's good plan. We began by looking at God's good plan for men and women. And then last Sunday night, singleness, this morning, marriage, and tonight, uh, men and women, the issue of equality and complementarity, uh, headship and submission in the home and in the church. Uh, so that's tonight. This morning we're on uh, marriage. Uh, many of you have uh, found the talks helpful, not least for the discussions they lead to and the really good and useful and honest conversations within our church family. And so because of that, we'll return to these, God willing, in the summer term and have some seminars where we can talk through the issues more uh, fully. Three books for you. They'll go up on the screen as uh, recommendations. Christopher Ash's book, Married for God, Tim Keller, The Meaning of Marriage, and John Piper, This Momentary Marriage. Three of the best books on uh, marriage. They would make excellent Christmas presents and are available in all good bookshops, most especially the Faith Mission, uh, where we know uh, well, and also online. All the books that we've recommended in the series we'll put on the weekly email next Friday, and uh, you can uh, get them uh, easily enough. Now, before we turn to what are seven points in service one, I manage points one, two, three, and six, and we'll see how we go uh, here. Um, but it's a big subject, and really what we want to do is to focus on some key principles and encourage us all to explore these issues in more depth. And these books would be an excellent way uh, to do that. Let me begin uh, with a definition of marriage and a word about failure and grace. In the first talk on gender and sexuality, we define marriage biblically as a God-created, God-given institution whereby one man and one woman live together in a one-flesh lifetime union. And that's marriage. Much more we could say on that, but that's how the Bible defines marriage. That was the subject of our first talk. And now a word about failure and grace. With all the topics in this series, whether gender or sexuality or singleness or marriage, we all bring baggage, as it were, to the table. And you might be sitting here thinking, all that this talk ahead is going to do for me is make me feel isolated compared to everybody else because my past is complex and difficult, and there have been many things that have happened that have been deeply painful. So you go home and you will feel crushed. Others of us here might be in danger of going home feeling self-righteous. Perhaps you've grown up in a Christian home, and from a young age you've always lived within a Christian framework, a Christian kind of uh, worldview. Now, if you are the latter, you need to remember the grace of the gospel, that you are as messed up and that I am as messed up. And if I look at my own heart and mind, I know that is true. And I'm in as much need of forgiveness and restoration and a transformed life in the power of the Holy Spirit than anyone else. And if you are the person who feels that you do not in some way belong, and maybe you never have felt that you really do belong in a Christian church because of your past. You 100% do. And the grace of the gospel forgives and removes guilt and removes a past. But don't ever think that others around you don't have a past or a present with which they struggle. We all do. So, a word about failure and grace. Now that's important. One or two people have asked me over the course of this week, and obviously it's a church, and I know them, and they know me, and I know their circumstances, their lives, their past. Is it okay if I come on Sunday? 
Yes. And I'm glad you're here. Lots of people like that. After all, we are a family. Now, like singleness, marriage is an important subject for everyone in a church family. Uh, Many people, um, most people in the first service, most by way of majority, were married. Most people, I guess, in this perhaps are not. But it's such an important topic for us all. In the Q&A last week, Rog made a very helpful point that single people are valued and important to everyone in a church family. Why? Because they are part of the family. I came across a great illustration of that in one of these books this week. Imagine it's Christmas lunch and your turn to have all the family. But you only invite the people in your family who are married. How absurd would that be? I mean, it would be absurd, wouldn't it? So in a church context, we've got to work really hard and be intentional about it, embracing folks within our uh, homes who are single if we are married or married if we are single. And don't get too hung up on the fact that they might think you're matching them up. You might be, but, you know, we've all been there before. And if you are single... I want to encourage you to pray for the married couples in the church. And many of you here will have in your minds thoughts about marriage, perhaps in the future. Some of you are desperate to be married and feel the pain of singleness very keenly. It is an important subject today for those who are dating and thinking about marriage. Now, Let me just pause there. If you are dating someone, it is important to have marriage in mind. That does not mean you cannot date someone unless you are sure you are going to marry them. Otherwise, you wouldn't date anyone. Nor does it mean that you need to know after a prescribed time. I think what it does mean, though, is that sooner or later, in a relationship, marriage needs to be discussed. And if it is discussed, and that relationship is never going to lead to marriage, it needs to finish. Otherwise, people will get hurt. And that's why, from time to time, I take uh, young guys out for walks with the dog in the dark and say to them, is everything okay? Have you talked about marriage? What are you thinking? And by and large, they will say, yeah, of course, we've talked about it. And I've learned over the years to, at that point, say nothing else. Especially when exactly are you going to get engaged. Can't do that. It's, it's the right time. But you see the logic. If you're with somebody, if you're dating somebody, and it's just not got marriage as a reference point in the end, you shouldn't because that's the natural progression of a relationship. Now, marriage is an important matter for everyone in a church family because we are a family. And to that end, and very importantly, and let me be straight and clear about this, we need, as a family, because we are a family, and we are a closer family than any other family on the earth as a church, we are and should be, We need to care very much in a loving and gentle way for those amongst us whose experience of marriage is painful or sad or whose marriages are broken or who are divorced or for single people who are acutely hurt because they are single. And can I encourage you in conversations not to skirt around the edges not to keep your relationships at a peripheral level for fear of offending someone. Let me encourage you to be real honest with one another. So let me give you a a parallel example. Say you know someone who, uh, Christmas is hard, as Peter prayed, because they have been bereaved. What's a better thing to do? To avoid them in church at Christmas time? In case you put your big foot in it? 
or to go up to them or invite them to your home and say, this must be a really tough time for you. I want you to know that I'm praying for you. And if you want to talk about it, I'd be delighted. Which is better, A or B? B. Okay? Now, I'll let you apply that in the context of people you know in here whose experience of this is difficult. And don't assume when you look at marriages in a church, like mine, for example, that it's always easy or doesn't need prayer for. And it's great for me when an elder will say to me, look, how are you doing in your marriage? Are you loving your wife? Are you cherishing her? Are you spending time? Do you know these questions when you're asked them by people you trust and know are a blessing? They're not intrusive. Point number two, only as Christians, we're doing very well. It's 11 minutes and 12 seconds. It gets worse though. (laughs) Only as Christians can we fully embrace marriage. Now, what do I mean by that? If you are not a Christian, and it was great to have a number of Christians and non-Christians at the first service, including a couple who got engaged last night. They listened very keenly. Or as you think about people in your family, your children perhaps, who are not Christians, please don't mishear what I'm saying. The day we get married, the day anyone gets married, whether Christians getting married or people who aren't Christians getting married, we enter into the institution of marriage. That's a, a, a pejorative word, the institution, but it's the right word. When a couple says, I do, and a minister or a celebrant, a minister or a secular celebrant says, you are husband and wife, they are, at that point, in the institution of marriage for the first time, a God-given institution. And that's true whether it is a Christian who gets married or people who aren't. Let me quote from Christopher Ashe. It doesn't matter whether a couple get married in church or elsewhere. It doesn't matter whether they have a grand and expensive reception or fish and chips in the local pub. It doesn't matter whether they are Christians or not, for Christian marriage is not a different institution from marriage in general, as long as they actually get married. On that day, whether they are Christians or not, they enter into a God-given institution whose shape and boundaries are not and never have been up for negotiation. Marriage is and will remain always what marriage is. And it's worth reflecting on that in our culture. As a culture perhaps redefines something, that doesn't mean to say that it has changed. It doesn't mean to say that it's not what it's always been. And so, as Christians in particular, we need to be careful when we speak about Christian marriage as if non-Christians getting married are in some sense not marrying. And that's important. But only as Christians can we fully embrace marriage. And I think what I mean by that is only when we accept the word of God as God's word and seek to live by it and seek to fashion our marriages in accordance with it or approach dating in marriage in light of God's word, only then will we fully experience and embrace marriage. So, for example, when you understand that marriage is a picture of Christ's relationship with his church and has the, the, the giving of the life of a man at its heart and is a model for you as husbands, then it raises marriage to a different level of understanding. And in that respect... Only Christians can fully embrace uh, marriage. But I think over the years I've been too casual or in using language like Christian marriage, as if marriage between non-Christians isn't marriage. Of course it is. It's a great thing and a powerful thing. Now, if you are a non-Christian listening to this, What I'm going to go on to say now, you might think is wrong, out of step with the culture, and it certainly is that, old-fashioned or even crazy. I suspect, though, what you will not think is any of these things. I don't want to tell you what you're going to think, but 
they are some of the things you might think, you may also think it's a great way to live. I'm not convinced that people in their heart of hearts always think what the culture or media says they should think. They think what they think. So keep an open mind as we look at what the Bible says about marriage. Now, um, of all the things we're going to look at today, I want us to be really clear what the purpose of marriage is. So if I was to say to a couple, as I often do, why are you getting married? Why are you getting married? It makes a world of a difference if you know what God's answer to that question is. It makes a world of a difference to the kind of marriage you will have. The answer is, let me let the cat out of the bag, and I'll show you in the Bible where it is. The purpose of marriage is to serve and glorify God. So as you prepare for marriage, you might be thinking about marriage in the future. You might have been married for a year or two. Some people in this room have been married for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. One couple here, over 60 years. You've still got 10 more years to be like the Queen and Prince Philip. But what on earth are you married for. And just to say at this point, in my mind at the moment are the people who that question pierces their hearts. And I need you to know that you're in my mind. Okay? Because it's hard. Turn to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. The biblical foundations for marriage. And uh, these passages, chapter 1, 26 to 31, Genesis 2, 15 to 25, are quoted extensively by Jesus and Paul in the New Testament. And in quoting them, they are affirming these passages in Genesis as foundational and always true. So chapter 1, verses 26 to 31, God said, Let us make man, that word means humanity in our image and our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing. So why did God make humanity? That humanity would have this unique role of ruling over the world. Under God, over the world. A responsibility to care for God's world. So God, verse 27, created Man, humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves. Now, it's clear from Genesis 1 that the purpose of being a human being in God's created order and intention is that as human beings we serve God and glorify Him. We serve God and glorify Him and in so doing we enjoy a fruitful relationship with the Lord. That's why God created us as humans, to serve him in that specific and unique privilege on the earth. Now, let's turn to Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 to 25. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now, I'd love to spend time on the nature of the language, the narrative in Genesis here. We don't have time to do that. Uh, I can speak to you happily about that. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of any tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the uh, heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man uh, called every living creature, that was its name. He gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast 
But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed it up. And the rib of the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, what did he say? This is great. That's what he says. Well, that's a paraphrase loosely of Genesis. This at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave. This is the bit you hear at weddings. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And they were naked and not ashamed. Now, key verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now, don't hear the word helper as pejorative. It is used, for example, of God in his relationship to Israel all through the Old Testament. A common misunderstanding, I think, of Genesis 2, and many, most would agree with that, is that Adam's chief problem in the garden, in the world, was loneliness. And God responded by creating Eve as a companion for him. And therefore, the goal of marriage is seen primarily as one of satisfying a man and a woman in terms of a mutually satisfying relationship. And that understanding leads a couple entering into marriage to have an introspective primary goal of meeting others' needs for companionship. Now, God does delight and intend a husband and wife to delight in each other in marriage. But mutual delight, mutual intimacy, mutual cherishing, an introverted view of marriage was never by God intended to be the primary or ultimate goal of the relationship. Genesis 2.18 needs to be understood in the context of Genesis 1. For example, Genesis 1.28, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens. Serve God and glorify him. In Genesis 2.15, Adam is placed in the garden and commanded to work it and take care of it. Straight after that command, God says, It is not good that the man should be alone. And therefore, the natural logic that flows from this text in Scripture is that when we are told that Adam needs a helper, that that is not someone to meet his loneliness, but someone to help or to stand with him or to compliment him, to enable him better to carry out the mandate God has given to humanity to serve him and to glorify him in the earth. He needs someone at his side to do this because he cannot do the work alone. And so marriage is given to enable humankind to exercise responsible dominion over God's world. And so far from being inward-looking, a married couple should be looking in two directions— Upwards to God and outwards to the world. In some ways, it would be helpful if on their wedding day, a married couple stand in front of me as the minister and they make promises before their friends. In other words, with their eyes looking at their backs and before God. I think it would be more powerful were I to have my back to the congregation, and they were to stand there and make promises to one another, yes, and we'll come to that, but to look out at those they will love and to look up to God. Marriage is not an inward-looking, introspective thing. It is an outward-looking and an upward-looking way to serve God together. Now let me just reiterate what Rog was saying last week. Singleness is equally a way to serve God. 
It's just different. Single people serve God and can serve God in ways that married people can't. Married people can serve God in ways that single people can't. So don't, in any of these talks, mishear a bias. That's why we have them one after the other. But if you are married, or if you are thinking of marriage, the reason you are married is primarily and ultimately not for one another, nor for yourself, but for that marriage to be turned outwards in the service of God and for his glory. How do you do that if you are a married couple? And if you're single here, then please pray that the married people in this church will be like this. How do you serve God in marriage? It means, first, seeing your marriage is not primarily about you. Marriage is not God's provision to meet you or my needs. God has a bigger purpose in the world than meeting my needs. That is not to say, and this is hard to speak on because people mishear, that's not to say that your needs don't matter to God. Think of the Lord's Prayer. How do you pray? It's not in my notes, so this may be unhelpful. The reason we have notes, just to say to you, is because we graft hard all week so we don't witter on up here. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. That's big stuff. Is God not concerned about my daily bread? Give us today our daily bread. That's the bottom end of the prayer. And marriage is, is, it needs the bottom end. It needs that personal intimacy bit. But the big picture stuff is serving God in the world. God has a bigger purpose for you in the world than yourself. God has a bigger purpose for your marriage than simply an introverted companionship through life. So beware the idolatry of selfishness. Our culture, uh, if I were to open these doors and let the culture in, it's going to come in at various points in this talk at 100, 200, or 300 miles an hour. One of the big gales in our culture is that marriage is for you two and nothing else. It is an exclusive new relationship. We'll come to that. But marriage is about serving, blessing others. Is that sentimental? Is it off-putting? Is it unattractive? Is it bad for our culture? Or is it good? Second, serving God in marriage means having children if you are able, nurturing them so they learn to serve God and glorify Him. Now, if you are a married couple and you are unable to have children, that will have been a very painful thing for you. And you will not have heard the words that I used in that statement if you are able. So please let me repeat them. Some people can't have children. And God doesn't ask of you something you cannot do. But if you are able to have children as a married couple, then we should. Because God's encouragement to us his mandate is to be fruitful and to multiply and fill the earth, which means to have children and to nurture them so they learn to serve God and glorify him. Phil and Naomi had little Claire uh, baptized, during which she completely dismantled my headset. I thought it was most amusing, by which point the congregation weren't paying a blind bit of attention to anything I was saying. It's very powerful when they stood up here this morning with the child in their arms and promised to nurture their child in the Lord. That's exactly what serving God in marriage means or part of what it means if you are able to have children. And I said to them, the promises you are making today are no less important than on your marriage day. What did you do on your marriage day? You promised to serve God. What are you doing today? You promised to tell your child that the most important thing 
in your whole life is that they serve the Lord. Now, if we open the doors at this point, the cultural hurricane blowing in would say to you, the most important thing in your child's life is their faith if you're a Christian. But an awful lot of other things are pretty close. Like how successful they are. Or who they marry. It doesn't matter one iota compared to knowing Jesus. And I think probably as Christians we we find a liberation in acknowledging that because it's so true. Now let me just say again, serving God in marriage means having children if you are able. Serving God in marriage also means proclaiming Jesus Christ because the mandate to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with children given to God's people in Israel was different because it was a a covenant community. It was a nation. And for us, most people in our culture don't know the Lord Jesus nor care for him, so we need to evangelize. Part of the the, the, the mandate at creation, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, is, is articulated in the New Testament, go and make disciples of all nations. And what Christians tend to do is they say, no, it's not, it's about having children. And others say, it's not about having children, it's about making disciples. It's about both. It's about both. Nurturing children in the Lord, but evangelism and marriage present you with lots of opportunities for evangelism. Lots of them. And I'm not here to to give numerous practical illustrations because all I'll do is illustrate the opportunities it's given us. We need to talk and think and pray in our small groups about how these different things work out in our lives. Now, serving God in marriage means, fourthly, and I want to spend a bit of time on this, modeling God's pattern for the marriage relationship. What does the New Testament say about how a Christian husband should be to their wife and how a Christian wife should be to their husband? Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33. And you'll find that on page 978 in the church Bibles. There are three passages like this in the New Testament. They all say the same thing. This is perhaps the most well-known. Wives, Ephesians 5, 22, Submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church's body, and is himself its saviour. As the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit uh, to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish or holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's a Genesis 2 quotation. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, one third of that text is devoted to wives as to how they should, uh, how their attitude should be to their husband. Two thirds devoted to men, because the men uh, need uh, are less likely to live up to these biblical. Requirements. I think that is, is true. One of the biggest problems in our Christian culture is men abdicating their responsibility to be men. And in our wider culture. Now, husbands, listen, or would-be husbands, 
Or look at the people in front of you who are married. Now again, I am feeling the pain of some of you here because this has not been the case in your life. Women in particular. This is not what you have experienced. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave his life. That hardly sounds autocratic. It embraces all the tenderness and affection of a lover but in a servant-hearted, cross-shaped way. It is love that knows no bounds, for the love that you are called to is such that you would lay down your life for your wife. Is that sentimental guff? I bet you if I asked Willie Stewart, who's over there, who's been married for 112 years, <laughs> Willie, would you lay down your life for your wife? 100%. what 100%. It's it's, it's, we all would. And of course it happened in history in extraordinarily powerful global ways, for example, in the Great Wars. Now that might be a risky, non-PC thing to say, but it's true. It's true. Now that's the ultimate practical expression, but it means all sorts of things. Caring for our wives in a selfless, thoughtful, loving way, putting their needs before our own. Spiritually, it means nurturing, building your wife up in their faith. It is to be vigilant lest you undermine their faith. It means taking responsibility for the spiritual atmosphere in your home. Do you pray as a couple? Nine times out of ten, it's my wife who says we should be praying more as a couple. Come on, minister. Husband. And I bet I'm not alone. Children, taking the responsibility for the spiritual nurture of your children. That's a man's responsibility. It means protecting and cherishing those you love. It means correcting those you love. It means setting an example of Christ's likeness that inspires those around you. What is the purpose of your loving your wife in this way? What is the purpose of Christ loving his church in the way he does is to save her, is to allow her to become a radiant picture of himself. What is the purpose of a Christian husband loving their wife as Christ loves the church? That she be radiant for Christ. That she shines for Christ. Now, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body. Wives are being asked to submit to Christ-like loving authority, to submit to a lover who looks upon you with the deepest devotion, a depth of devotion that will give up his life for you. You are being asked to submit to his care, to his nurture, to his protection, to his cherishing of you, to his godly leadership. Now, I need hours and hours and hours to talk about this intuitively think about this. A woman living in a marriage like that will, 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 will by default or, or by intention call a man to live in the way that he should live. And a man living in the way that he should will create a nurtured and loving environment such that his wife but it all goes so horribly wrong. You get men who are autocratic. You get men who are just pathetic. Abdication. You get women who are bossy, a nightmare. And you get women who will live in a sense as a, in a sort of weak way. Headship and submission is not about weakness and strength. It's about two strong, gifted people living in a way that God has given them to live and so flourishing. Now, I'll say a lot more about that tonight. Serving God and glorifying Him in marriage means modeling God's pattern for the marriage relationship as Ephesians has defined it because, one, it is God's pattern. And that, in many ways, is more than enough. It is God's pattern. It is the best way to help your spouse and your marriage serve God and glorify Him. It is beautiful and it is attractive. 
I'd love to have a little sidebar here. There's some great material there. I think it's beautiful and attractive because it models masculinity and femininity, which is beautiful and attractive. And fourthly, it mirrors and points to the relationship between Jesus and his church. Paul has encouraged husbands to love their wives as Christ has loved the church. Paul encourages wives to submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Do you see a marriage that models God's pattern for the marriage relationship? A marriage that follows God's pattern points to the pattern that is the relationship between Jesus and his church. But if your marriage models this pattern, it's not like a picture of your marriage, like your wedding day photograph that you hang on the wall and say, oh look dear, our marriage points to the relationship between Christ and his church. What this is saying is that a marriage rightly ordered shares the essence and the rightness and the goodness and the grace of the relationship between Christ and his church. We had a, a couple here in the first service who weren't Christians who got engaged yesterday. It was a kind of God saying that. And I effectively said to them in the service, I want you to look at Phil and Naomi and the way they live in marriage and say, I want that. And what they are seeing and longing for is of the same essence as a longing for Christ and his relationship. Which is why Paul doesn't know what he's talking about in Ephesians, in the sense, is he talking about marriage or is he talking about Christ's relationship with the church? Just when we think he's talking about marriage, he says, I'm not talking about marriage, I'm talking about the relationship between Christ and his church. Now, much to think about there. Why do we find that so hard to embrace and accept? Because the doors swing open and the cultural hurricane is at, well, dangerous levels. Why though? Why is it, do you think? Why is this so non-PC? Why? I don't know. Why? This is good. It is good. Now, time has gone. We've done better than the first service. We've got fully through point one, two, and three. Now, I want to, to finish with points four and point six briefly. I have encouraged you to think of marriage and I think the Bible very much focuses on this as outward looking. As looking up to God, looking out to serve. Not inward looking. It's not about me and Sally or just me or her. It's about how can we best serve God together as a married couple? Yes, 100%. But in order to be extrovert or outward looking in a marriage, there are times and each day and in a rhythm of your married life that that marriage needs to be intensely introverted. Which is what intimacy and cherishing is in a marriage. Physical intimacy, cherishing, psychologically, spiritually. And if you use intimacy physically as an example, Sally's not here, so I can talk about this now. <laughs> There's nothing more exclusive and out of bounds than that whole dimension of marriage to anyone else. And that's an illustration of how uh, an outward-looking marriage depends on exclusive introspection often. And so there is an idolatry of selfishness and there is often in Christian marriages an idolatry of selflessness. I am serving 
the Lord, I just happened not to have seen my wife for a month. And I think in Christian marriages, because of a desire to serve the Lord, more than in non-Christian marriages, and statistics say these things are true, intimacy and cherishing is far less valued and far less affirmed. Now, I think you realize and see the rhythm and resonance of that. Let me finish with number uh, six. I'd love to speak about four, five, seven, and all the other things. Now, it, it pains me that people had to ask for permission to come today whose lives are hard. And I wonder if, as a church, we have begun to unpack and address these issues uh, far too late. Of course we should talk about these things. For some, this is acutely sensitive and painful ground. They are not in a marriage where they have ever experienced love from their husbands or devotion. In fact, they are abused. And that can be extreme. It can be less extreme, but it's not uncommon. Sometimes husbands are at the end of abuse themselves. Some of you have grown up in broken homes. Some of you have been the victims of adultery. There are a number of people in the church for whom that is the case. Some of you have seen the effect of that in your parents' marriages. Some of you have seen or experienced the terrible pain of adultery or desertion or divorce. And you've wrestled with years. Was it right? Was it wrong? Well, I think there are questions about right and wrong, and we'll look at these tonight. But it's in the past. It's done. It's done. And there is grace, and there is forgiveness, and there is a church community to which you belong, where everyone else's life is a mess as well. Some people recover in their marriages from adultery because there is contrition and repentance. Some never do because there is none. And I want you to know and to hear from me as your minister that this is your church family where you are loved and cared for. And the church is on the line. Not you, but the church is on the line to support you and care for you and encourage you and love you. Let me say this too. If you are listening to this and it is a description of your marriage and you are the party and not behaving in a way that God intends, or if you are considering or flirting or are within six inches or six miles of the line that is adultery, run as fast as you can in the other direction before it is all too late. And don't think for a minute in a church that that can never happen. So pray that marriages will be strong. Now, as we uh, finish I want to draw your attention to the back of the sheet. Three things. I want to encourage us to do, if you are married and it's appropriate, and what I mean by it's appropriate, some people just couldn't go home and sit down with their husband and say, I want to talk about this. If you are married and it is appropriate, set aside an hour this week to talk about your marriage in light of the Bible's teaching and pray together. For everyone, talk and pray about how as a church family we might better support and encourage married couples and families. And for everyone, please take time this week to pray for and encourage as appropriate people you know in the church family for whom marriage is or has been in the past very difficult or painful. Let me encourage you to put your big feet in it, which is far better than skirting around the edges. Let me pray for these people in particular. Father God, we pray that we would not be afraid as a church family to put our feet in it. Surely it is better to mumble through caring words and caring hearts than it is to say nothing and stand at a distance. Lord, heal the broken, we pray. 
Encourage those who struggle, we pray. And help us to put the past in the past and to move on in a caring, supportive environment. And for those who are married here and in other parts of our church family, may their marriages be in accordance with your purpose for marriage. Keep these marriages And we pray, Lord, that they would be so thoroughly extrovert looking out and so intensely introverted looking in, both, that they really, truly, and wonderfully would be marriages that serve God and glorify him. And help us all, Lord, to remember that any human marriage is a momentary marriage. For the time we would have looked at this, And there is an invitation to the marriage day, which is the day that the new creation dawns, when the Lord Jesus will meet his bride, the church, and there will be an eternal wedding reception to which every one of us, married or single, is invited. Help us, Lord, to reply, yes, I will come. Help us, Lord, to come to Christ and trust in him now that he is our Savior and Lord, that we might be married to him and live for all eternity in his glorious presence. So, Lord, we commit ourselves to you as a family. Help us to behave as such, bearing each other's hurts. We ask that for Jesus' sake. Amen.